Drums, please. You know what I like about summertime in the U.S. of A? I like firing up the grill. I like throwing on some thick, juicy steaks. I like throwing the frisbee right over the heads of a bunch of little kids. I like digging deep, deep, deep in the cooler where it's cold and pulling out a nice tall boy, passing it over to whoever's walking by. I like fireflies at dusk. I like when you can smell the rain, when you can hear the thunderstorm rumbling towards you, the ground electric in anticipation of what's coming next. I like handing sparklers to the neighbor kids when everybody's getting ready for the big fireworks show my cousin Josh is cooking up. I like it when Josh tells everybody to stand back, stand back now, and starts lighting up fireworks obtained through wildly clandestine means. I like those huge rockets that take off in the sky and explode. Everybody has their own American dream, but some of us, some of us have to work a lot harder than others to enjoy their piece of it. Today on Snap Judgment, we proudly present Coming to America. Amazing stories from people trying to put their own stamp on the U.S. of A. From PRX and NPR, my name is Glenn Washington, and please pull up your lawn chair, because this is Snap Judgment. Today, on the Coming to America episode, we're looking into stories of people chasing their own version of the American dream. Christy Chan was born in the U.S. of A. Her parents had both immigrated from China, and Christy, she'd always taken her American identity for granted. Until the day, her family decided to move away from Maryland and start life in a brand new town. When I was a kid, I grew up in a rural suburban part of Virginia, and my parents were Chinese immigrants, and we moved there because my parents found their dream home. In, uh, in Chinese culture, it's really important to be able to own the home that you live in, and they found this town full of little houses around lots of farmland, and everywhere they looked, there were these bright, patriotic-looking flags, and I think they must have just seen this town and thought, what a dream come true. So we ended up moving to this town when I was seven, and it was very hard to adjust to that town because we were told in many ways that we were unwelcome. We also realized that these bright, cheerful flags that we thought looked so patriotic were actually Confederate flags. And my parents did not speak English, so one of my jobs was to be the translator of the family. Day-to-day -day things were actually pretty difficult, like going to the store, you know, you're constantly being confronted. One question that we were constantly being asked was people would just stop us on the street and say, what are you? I think I always considered myself American. It never occurred to me that I wasn't. And when we were accused of not belonging there, I think I was just very confused. Like, I didn't know how to respond. And it was just constant confrontation. And all the while, my parents weren't really that worried because I think when you don't speak the language in a strange way, it protects you from things that you're better off not knowing. One of the things that started happening right away when we moved to this town was that a lot of the local church groups started soliciting and knocking on the door and saying, hey, you're new to town, why don't you guys join our church? And it was a very sort of aggressive soliciting. Um, and around the same time, we started getting these letters in the mail. And the letters looked very formal, and they had crosses on them, so we thought they were from a church. And the top of the letter always had the words Ku Klux Klan. The first letter that we got, I recall them saying that this community was for white Christians, 
and non-white Christians were not welcome. So once these letters started coming, I was trying to translate them for my mother, and they were actually pretty difficult to translate, as you can imagine, because um, Ku Klux Klan is not a word that you say a lot when you're seven or eight, and even the words white supremacist are not words that you use. Um, But nonetheless, I would do my best to try to translate these letters. I knew that they didn't like us, but I didn't know the history of the Ku Klux Klan. I was especially curious about the fact that these letters were sometimes signed by someone called the Wizard. But because the letters kept coming and I would say, oh, there's another one, at some point, you know, I think she just wanted me to keep myself busy. So my mom said something like, well, why don't you just write them back then? And at the same time, we were doing pen pals at school and kids were getting assigned other pen pals from other countries, you know, pen pals in Sweden, pen pals in Spain. And I thought, I have a wizard for a pen pal. And my letters would start off saying, dear wizard, we're really nice. Please be our friend. I tried to make the letters look as beautiful as possible, and I would draw pictures on them. I put glitter on the letters sometimes. Stickers were big, and kids were trading stickers, and and I was saving my best stickers for, for the wizard. They really were done as though they were a gift to them. I just imagined that once they read my letters and were taken with them, that I'd soon be hanging out with a wizard. Um, that we'd be eating pizza together, that we'd be, I don't know, riding bikes together, listening to Madonna together. There was one evening where both my parents were working late, and um, we'd always been instructed that when the kids were home by ourselves, you don't answer the door, you turn the lights out, and you pretend no one's home. And I can remember specifically, there were two occasions where we just heard a lot of people gathered on our porch, banging on the door. And it was the sound of sound of men, sound of voices. We just did what we were told. We um, turned the lights out. We got really quiet. We were giggling, and we thought it was hysterical that we were pretending that we weren't home. I started to suspect that everyone was in the Ku Klux Klan because their symbol was a cross. And as far as I knew, our town was full of crosses, and um, and people wore crosses. And so it did start to feel like, who is the KKK? Where are they? So the more we were trying to ignore the real world of what was going on, the more it made sense to try to get through to this wizard guy and get him to use his wand or whatever and say, hey, everybody, these people are great. I think sometimes people just get used to having you around. And it didn't hurt that my dad opened a restaurant. So this restaurant was a Hawaiian-themed restaurant. But it actually served Chinese food. You got laid when you got there and the chairs had palm trees on them. So it was, it was not subtle at all. It was very much, hey, we're Hawaiian, <laughs> parentheses, not from another country, don't worry, eat our food. And it was just such a hit, and people loved the restaurant that it helped us gain acceptance because we were the people that served that amazing Hawaiian food, which wasn't really Hawaiian food. And then, like most kids do, I made um, actual friends. So I didn't need this mysterious wizard anymore because I'm sending them what I think are these beautiful letters, and we, were, we just kept getting these mean letters back. I think I, I started to notice that they never asked anything about me. Um, it was always about what they wanted, and when you send someone a sticker, they're supposed to send some back. The real kids were, more, were much more interesting. So at some point, the letters actually stopped coming. So for me, this meant that either the letters worked or that they had moved on to someone else. So whether or not a little bit of magical thinking was involved, I'll never know, but it didn't ever occur to us to move to another town and to not live here in in this country. Because what is more American than to make it work? Big thanks to Christy for sharing her tale. Anyone who can make friends with the KKK will always have a friend in SNAP. <clears throat> well, I, you know, you know what I mean. You know what I mean, Snappers. Now, Christy, she's working on a film about her pen pal situation. We'll have a link to her film trailer on our website, snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu with sound design by Renzo Gorio. Okay, yep, two, three.
we know that every day people leave wherever they're from and everything they know to seek a better life amidst these amber waves of grain. Our next guest, Vanessa, she was one of those who risked everything to make the American journey. My name is Vanessa. I was born in Nayarit, Mexico. Most of the people in that town is family to me. We didn't have much of what you have here in the US, no luxury, everything is used. Every tree had a purpose, every plant had a purpose. My mother had moved to the US since I was eight. And after five years is when she sent for us. She wanted me to be here and go through school because in Mexico, most of the girls stopped going to school after middle school. I was already in my eighth grade. Coming to the U.S. was not one of the things I wanted to do, but because of what it meant for me, families together, it's a big, big deal. I made that decision. I wanted to be with my mother, so there was a hope there. The idea of a coyote in, in Mexico is people that help those that needed to come across the border. In the U.S., a coyote is a criminal. In Mexico, the coyotes in our town were seen as respectable people. They get very good treatment by the people. They're like heroes to many of them. Family back at home had contacts with a coyote in Tijuana. And that was an elderly person that used to help a lot of people that come from our town. This coyote family had a two-story home, nice cars. They were very well off. The man came, picked me up with his wife, got to know me, and they treated me really nice. During lunch, he actually talked to me about what was gonna be. This other person was gonna cross me, but there was gonna be someone that he trusted. And then we drove to the meeting spot. He said goodbye to me very nicely. In Spanish, we say, nos vamos a ver pronto. Then he handed me off to this other coyote. They spoke, he just said, you take good care of this girl. If anything happens, you pay. You pay with your life. Then after that, I drove with the other man. He was probably 30s, 40s probably. There was something in that man that I just did not trust that man. We went to a gas station and I remember he went to the restroom next thing you know he comes out of there with his hair all wet and then he's trying to put his hand across me, across my shoulders. When he tried to put his hand around my neck, I move away. That's when he said to me, we need to pretend you are with me, to pretend that we were together. I've been 5'9", ever since I was 11, built already. Yes, I had a body that could go for a 20, but I was a 13-year-old girl. What kind of man this is? I was scared. I was like, oh gosh, I don't even know where I am. We kept driving towards the border. And then a couple of miles before he got to cross, he said that he will put me behind the back seat and to be quiet. And that it was gonna be very easy, that he had contacts. And by that, I think he meant contacts with the border patrols. He stopped. Then I realized when he opened the trunk that the gas was in a big tanks of plastic. I thought, okay. And then he took the seat back out. And then there was this hole cut out. He said, you're gonna get in here and I'm gonna close it and I'll tell you when I cross. And then it kind of clicked on me that it was a gas tank. While I was inside, it's, it was very dark and the only thing I could see was a hole, probably the size of the penny. And then when, he, when we crossed, I remember them saying identification. And then they just, the car just started moving. 10 minutes, 15 minutes, he stopped again. And he came in the back seat, he opened it and he said, okay, now you can go, you know, and sit down. 
so I had to sit next to him. That was, I think, the most uncomfortable part because I remember seeing him grabbing a key, taking it inside at something, and it was white powder and sniffing. That freaked me out. And then him talking about, so what are you gonna do in the US? And you know, I mentioned to him, oh, because I wanna go to school and my mother is gonna help me. And he said, well, I can help you. I was 13, but I knew, you know, he was perverted. He even offered that powder, you know. I said, no, no, thank you. He takes me to his home where my uncles and my mother were gonna pick me up. When he got to his home, he behaved totally different. He wouldn't even talk. So he was like a different person. The wife sat down and started talking to me, very nice. And um, she started doing a prayer and she's talking about God. And I'm just thinking to myself, does she even know what this man is doing? When my uncles showed up, I run. I just run straight to my mom and just got in the car. And I hugged them, I hugged my mother, I cried. Yeah, it felt, it felt great because it was, okay, this is over. I was able to go to school. I was able to graduate from UCLA. I'm married to a wonderful man and I have a five-year-old and I have a great life. But every time someone tells me they're trying to come for any reason, when I talk to my friends or family in Mexico, I keep asking them why. Here, the networks of support are not in this country as they're in your country. I still think about it like if I would have been an adult, I wouldn't think I can trust anyone with my daughter. And there's a lot of not happy ending stories when it comes to border crossing. If I would have known what I know now, I don't think I would have done it. Thanks to Vanessa for telling her story. If you have a story you think the world needs to hear, let us know on our website, snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu with sound design by none other than Pat Masidi-Miller. And when Snap Judgment continues, we're going to the site of a very little-known civil war, the great state of Texas fighting both sides, because that's how we have to do it sometimes here in the U.S. of A. You do not want to miss this when Snap Judgment, the Coming to America episode, continues. Snap Judgment, the Coming to America special. Now, we've been featuring immigrants coming to the U.S. of A, but even once you've been here a while, freedom, it ain't no guarantee. Snap Judgment Stephanie Fu went all the way to Marfa, Texas to bring us this next story. In the West Texas desert, the horizon seems to go on forever. It can drive you a little crazy, heading in a straight line for 100 miles and seeing nothing but roadkill. But then, bam, almost like a shimmering hallucination, I see this oasis, 
In the middle of barren nothingness, there's a hill covered in oak trees. This is the tiny, tight-knit community of the Davis Mountain Resort. As I pull up to the entrance of the resort, I see an enormous sign. Warning, private residence. All trespassers strictly forbidden. When somebody walks up the door, I won't even say hello, I'll just shoot them, that's it. Drag your dead ass out of here. That's Joe Rowe. He's lived here for more than 20 years. And he's got this beautiful adobe house. He built the thing himself. And since he prefers to shoot first and ask questions later, it's a damn good thing he was expecting me. When did you first shoot a gun? Probably when I was 10 years old. There's more guns in this house right now than there are people, I guarantee you that. You hear that snap? Okay, okay. Joe is a lot nicer than he'd like you to believe. (laughs) Everyone in West Texas loves this man. No wonder. He greeted me with low-fat, fresh-baked blueberry muffins. The thing is, he's actually got a pretty good reason for owning all those guns. Fifteen years ago, he used them when he got into a showdown to defend his homestead. We built it, and I intend to stay here. I didn't build it to give it to someone else. See, it all started when a stranger rolled into town by the name of Rick McLaren. McLaren had some ideas that didn't sit well with Joe Rowe. You didn't really talk to Rick McLaren, you listened to Rick McLaren. Rick McLaren moved in just down the street from Joe. McLaren was a secessionist who believed that Texas was annexed illegally to the United States, so it should be considered its own republic, the Republic of Texas. And of course, McLaren crowned himself the head of the Republic of Texas. Who in the hell's he decided he's going to just become the head of the Republic of Texas? Do you think that Texas was annexed illegally? Even if there was, it's a little late in the game now. We disagreed over some things philosophically down through the years. Their main quarrel was over the fact that McLaren organized a militia group for the Republic of Texas. He set up a training camp a couple miles down the road from Joe. Dozens of militiamen moved into what McLaren called his Republic of Texas Embassy, and the militiamen practiced military maneuvers, which meant they had pipe bombs, trip wires, and blow up things, and they'd drive up down the road with their automatic weapons. The Republic of Texas even published manuals with instructions for creating homemade bombs and disabling civilians. The community was not happy about this. A lot of the people in the resort are retired, and the last thing they needed was pipe bombs in their vegetable gardens. And as the president of the Homeowners Association, Joe spoke up. And I'm a pretty vocal person anyway, and have a tendency to readily express my opinion about anything. And I didn't like what was going on. Because of this, Joe was on the top of McLaren's hit list. McLaren said that if anybody messed with the Republic of Texas, he would get his revenge. But McLaren said an awful lot of things. So authorities didn't pay him much attention. Until one day, somebody did mess with the Republic. A sheriff pulled over a Republic of Texas militiaman. And when he stopped him, he was going to take him to jail on a weapons violation. He had some illegal weapons in his car. The man was taken off to jail. McLaren found all this out by listening to his police scanner. And he lost it. He sent out the order to his men. Seize Joe Rose house and take him hostage. Seize Joe Rose house and take him hostage. McLaren devised a plan to send two men to seize Joe's home, Greg Paulson and Richard Keyes. Paulson was the man in charge, and Keyes was to be his lackey. Joe heard them pull up in his driveway. And people started jumping out of the cars, wearing camouflage clothes and carrying semi-automatic weapons and spreading out around the house. What's going through your head at this point? (laughs) Holy holy what's going on? And Greg Paulson approached the back door. And he told me, surrender, you're under arrest, we come to take you hostage. But you gotta be insane if you think that you can take Joe Rowe down without a fight. And I said something like, you know, you, you know you're crazy, you know, get your butt out of here. I was on the inside of the door and he was on the outside out there. And I had my pistol pointed at him, and he had his rifle pointed at me, and we had what you call kind of a Mexican standoff there for a minute. Each man waited for the other to make a move. And just then, Joe's dog walked off the porch between the two men. Remember those Republic of Texas manuals? They said, the first thing you do when you invade someone's house is neutralize their pets. And to me, neutralize means kill. So I thought there's my favorite dog walking off the porch. 
And that, by the time he said, lay down your weapon, there's more of us than are you. That was a fact. I could see that. So I said, okay, I will if you won't shoot my dog. He said, okay. So I laid my pistol down. And when I raised back up, he shot me. He shot three times. Joe was hit once with a bullet to the shoulder. And he yelled out, said, you son of a bitch, you shot me anyway. And that's exactly what I said. <laughs> and that, that, that was my testimony in court. If you don't want it in retrospect, that's right. He never said he wouldn't shoot me, he said he wouldn't shoot the dog. I guess he'd done what he said he'd do. What's it like to get shot? It hurts. <laughs> it hurts. I thought, damn, this ain't working out very well. <laughs> this ain't the way it works on TV, you know. The, the hero's finna get his ass kicked here. Paulson and Keyes shoved their way into the house. As the leader, Paulson ordered Keyes to fill the bathtubs with water in case authorities cut off the water supply. Then. Keyes took his car down to the end of the driveway and shot his own tires out so that the car could be used as a roadblock. Lastly, they took down Joe's Texas flag and put up the flag of the Republic of Texas. It was clear they planned to stay a long time. Joe's shoulder was torn up from the bullet wound and it looked like he was in bad shape. I was bleeding quite a bit at the time. All that blood really freaked out Greg Paulson. And I think he got to thinking, damn, this old man's gonna die, and I'm gonna be in big trouble. I done killed somebody. But truth be told, Joe was just fine. You know, I had my ass kicked worse than that Saturday night in the hockey dunk. Went back on Sunday for more. <laughs> One hour turned into two, two turned into eight. Paulson spoke on the phone with both McLaren and the Texas police trying to figure out his next move. In the meantime, the intruders made themselves at home. It's getting close to dark, and they're getting hungry, and uh, they asked my wife if she had anything to eat. And she said, well, I have some lasagna. And they said, well, we fixed her some. She said, yeah. So she come downstairs, and she fixed up a big old huge pan of lasagna and dished up plates full of it and gave it to each one of them. And they chowed down the lasagna. It's true that she cooked them dinner, but Joe's wife was no pushover. Scolded them severely <laughs> about tracking up her house with muddy boots. She had an attitude, and Richard Keyes didn't like that. I don't think he really liked women anyway, and he sure didn't like a strong woman. You, you could tell that by his nature. Keyes was a dangerous character. Richard Keyes, he was dying to shoot someone. That is the truth. And the first car approached, he begged Greg Paulson let him shoot him. Keyes even secretly unloaded one of Joe's pistols and laid it on the bar. Then, he kept asking Joe's wife to go to the kitchen and make him something to eat. He knew that she would pass the gun every time she walked into the kitchen. Did not doubt my mind what he was hoping that she would take a chance on picking up that pistol so he'd have an excuse to shoot her. But the leader of the mission, Paulson, prevented Keyes from getting too trigger happy because Paulson was cut from a different cloth Murder was the last thing on his mind. Over the hours he sat in the house, he actually sat down with Joe and talked to him. Over the course of the evening, we talked about how he'd been led astray by Rip McLaren. He was already having second thoughts about what had happened. It became apparent that he, he, really, he really wished he wasn't as deeply involved in, in the situation as he was. And so it became pretty obvious to us that unless something screwed up, they probably weren't going to do any more harm to us. And the best thing we did is just sit here and just hope it played out right. Thirteen hours passed. It was one in the morning before Paulson finally made a deal with the authorities. The police would release the incarcerated Republic of Texas militia man if Paulson and Keyes would leave Joe's house. This sounded good to everyone, but there was one little problem. Richard Keyes had shot the tires out of their getaway car. So then it occurred to him that they're a little short on transportation, okay? So Greg Paulson asked me if he'd use my pickup. He, he asked me. I said, well, I said, what if I say no? He said, I'm going to take it anyway. I said, well, in that case, feel free to use it. <laughs> I said, the keys are in it. I said, wait a minute, what are you going to do with my pickup? He said, I'm going to take it back to where McLaren is. I said, no, don't do that. Driving up back there in my pickup, they'll think you're me. Carol shoots you. And he thought about that a minute. He said, you're probably right. I said, won't you leave it at the country store? He said, okay. I said, will you do me a favor? He said, I'll consider it. I said, when you leave the country store, just lock the door and throw the keys in the floorboard. I've got another set of keys. I said, he's okay. That was nice of him. 
Au revoir. They're just like, sayonara? Like, well, they, they weren't no hugging and kissing going on. <laughs> I didn't say, y'all come back now. Nope. Paulson and Keyes sped away. An ambulance arrived and took Joe to the hospital. Soon afterward, the Texas Rangers stormed the Republic of Texas militia camp. Another standoff took place between Texas and the Republic of Texas. But after seven days, McLaren and his troops knew they couldn't hold out any longer. They surrendered, and they were all taken off to jail. In cuffs and on his way to jail, Paulson shuffled past Joe. And he walked by me and he said, Good afternoon, Mr. Rowe. How's your shoulder? But he kind of had, a, I guess, a begrudging respect for me in a way. The way that Joe talks about Paulson, you almost sense that that begrudging respect might be mutual. Is there a lesson that you, you took from this whole thing? I should have shot the summons when I had the chance. Well, almost. After going through Republic of Texas correspondence, authorities found out that they had planned multiple terrorist attacks, including plans to fire rocket launchers at the president. And so, in a way, Joe was a national hero. A Texas senator mailed him a certificate of commendation and a Texas flag that had flown over the Capitol. And now, Joe practices his all-American right to bear arms to defend his home. I never go anywhere without a weapon, and I haven't since. He keeps at least one loaded gun in every room of his house and in all of his vehicles. Well, I've got three 9mm, one of them got a laser sight, 357 Magnum, I got 38 Special. You don't mess with Texas. So, of course, I couldn't leave without taking a self-defense class from the sharpest shooter in the West. Joe handed me a 410 shotgun pistol named The Judge. Just cock it and shoot it. Right there? You can get a hold on it, girl. All right. Um, how do I... Just pull? Well, you just trigger. Okay. <laughs> I hit the can of Bud Light on my first try. I can't believe I got it. And so, though I like to think that I do all right in Texas, I prefer to ask my questions before I shoot. That morning, a lady locked arms with a shotgun and the pistol rode west with the sun. Now the outlaws of Tombstone and the outlaws forever know that death is the way of the gun. Alright, thanks a lot, Joe. Thanks a lot. The last thing I need here in Snap Studios is Yosemite Foo shooting off guns all over the place. Keep your guns at home, Stephanie Foo. Keep them at home. Now, if you want to see video of Joe reenacting this shootout, Go on ahead, check it out. The video is there on our website, snapjudgment.org. When Snap Judgment continues, we're putting on our travel boots because we're a people that likes to move. Am I right? Am I right? You know I'm right. When Snap Judgment, the Coming to America episode continues. Stay tuned. Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. My name is Glenn Washington, and today, in between the hot dogs and potato salad, 
We're exploring the stories of people trying their level best to get a taste of the American dream. And sometimes, you don't know what you've got until it is gone. See, as a little boy growing up in Chicago, Sam Biederman knew there was something a little different about him. I'll let him explain. As a kid, as early as nine, I had all of the stereotypes, I guess you could say. I secretly loved show tunes. I had uh, no athletic ability. And uh, uh, on top of that, there was the matter of my sexual desire for men. early to mid high school, so I was about 15 to 16, and sometimes I thought that my desires were just a phase, sort of a stop on the way to normalcy. I was uncomfortable with what I was slowly beginning to really identify, that I was gay and that I am gay, and my sexuality wasn't something that I could change, but I wasn't quite ready to admit it. Instead, I just sort of tried to tamp out all gay qualities that I had. Because if I didn't have any qualities, well, then I wouldn't be gay. In the 90s, I went to a private high school in Chicago and a trip to Africa was offered to us. You know, what appealed to me about it was that it seemed like a place that was so foreign, with people so different, that I would just become an American. You know, I wouldn't have my sexuality to differentiate myself. So I got to go on this trip to Africa with a handful of other American kids, but there were very different kinds of people that we were encountering. Those comparisons that you make against uh, your classmates in high school, taller, shorter, fatter, thinner, gay or straight or whatever, really just disappeared. And it was an enormous relief that I was no longer reflexively comparing myself to other male teenagers and finding myself less straight than they were. We had been in Africa for a little over two weeks. We were in Namibia, which was the final stop. And we had offered a ride in the coach bus that we were taking from place to place to a group of students in Windhoek, which is the capital of Namibia. You know, I'm sitting in the bus watching the students come on, and uh, this kid who seemed like a little older than me sat down next to me, and he turned to me immediately, very cheerily, and announced himself. His name was William. You know, and we started talking in... Uh, he started asking me where I was from. So I said, Chicago. He said, oh, Chicago. He had heard of it. And he was very excited to be talking to me and very comfortable speaking to me. I, myself, though, was entirely uncomfortable with this. Not, you know, not because he was a Namibian, but there was something about him that, that made me a little nervous. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. So, you know, we're talking and we're talking and sort of apropos of nothing, in the middle of this conversation, he reaches across the seat and grabs my knee. It was very hot, so I was wearing shorts. I remember he grabbed my you know, naked knee and he says to me, I'm not like other boys. And I, oh God, I was, I was completely mortified, right? I was beyond mortified because the idea that I was legible as a gay person, just by the way I looked, hit me pretty hard. I mean, somebody <laughs> I felt couldn't be more different from me, from literally all the way around the world, saw me and identified me as the gay kid on the bus. I lied to him and told him that I was like other boys, and he sort of looked at me a little surprised. And I asked him, you know, well, what's it like to be gay? You know, this thing that I'm totally not. And, um, you know, he said it was not good, there was a lot of homophobia, people here are pretty prejudiced. And he says to me that uh, they had a youth center, like an LGBT youth center, and People had come by and thrown bricks through the window, so they had to meet in secret about how 
he was gay and his parents didn't know he was gay and he could never tell his friends and he had to get out of Namibia, he kept saying. You know, he said, I'd really like to go to the United States. It seems much better there for someone like me. And, you know, here I was, a, a closeted American kid, and I said, yeah, it's much better. Within a couple days, I was back in Chicago. And over the next year and a half, I came out. You know, I'm a little uncomfortable with the narrative of, hey, I went to Africa and this guy taught me a lesson about what it really means to be X, Y, and Z. I look back on this incident with, you know, red-hot shame that William was completely open about who he was, and I met that with a really self-defensive lie. It's, you know, one of the more cowardly things I think I have done. Unlike Namibia, I grew up in a really tolerant neighborhood in a really tolerant city, and coming out was something that I was able to do and just get complete love and acceptance and I could have done it a lot sooner. Just a heads up, Sam knows and Snap knows that it is not easy to come out everywhere in America. Sam had a supportive group of people around him, and that's great. Big thanks to Sam Biederman for sharing your story. That piece was produced by Anna Sussman and Pat Messini Miller. Now, our favorite tenant here at the Snap Judgment is the protection for freedoms of speech. Here at Snap, we can say anything we want without fear of reprisal. For example, if I want to talk about, say, I can say, you know what, this and that, and your mama's get that garrison kill. And that's okay, because this is America. Now, for Ali, when he was coming up, though, he didn't have it as good as we do. And for Ali, a lot of things went unsaid. This is Ali. He's from Turkey. Hi, I am Ali. There are three things you need to know about Ali. One, his religion, which is Alevi, a type of Shia Muslim. Two, his ethnicity, which is Kurdish. And three, Ali has a really big mouth. Uh, if I get connected, then I start talking. Thing is, if you live in Turkey, it's not always fun to be a Levi or a Kurd, and it can be dangerous to have a big mouth. Kurds are the largest minority population in Turkey, and to some, they're seen as the biggest threat to Turkish culture. Until recently, even speaking the Kurdish language was a punishable offense. You cannot say, I am a Kurdish, this is a Turkish country. And in the 30s, the Turkish military killed thousands of Kurdish people. They killed around 40,000 Alevi Kurdish people. So it's no surprise that when he was growing up, Ali was told to stay silent about his identity. When I hang out with my friends, they ask me, what's your name, Ali? They ask me, are you Kurdish? I said, no, I am not, because I'm scared. So Ali learned to disguise his accent, pretend he was a native Turk, and stay silent. And when he came of age, he was drafted by the Turkish military. Everybody has to go. Even Kurdish, Turkish, doesn't matter what's your ethnicity. If you're a Turkish citizen, you have to go to army. He performed incredibly well and was one of the strongest soldiers they had. And so one day, some officers called him to them. They called my name and then they said, well, after this, you gotta go to Foca, which is the special force. Ali was selected by the special forces. This was not good news. Kurdish militants were staging rebellion and fighting against the Turkish army for the right to practice their culture. And as a member of the special forces, Ali would have to go fight against his own people. And he couldn't do a thing about it. It's weird. I felt bad about their forcing me to try to fight with my own people. They were fighting for their right to express themselves. They want to have a right. 
but against his own inclinations, Ali was a good soldier. When there's a fight start, you don't say that's my own people because they are shooting you. So then you have to start to worry about yourself. You are trying to protect yourself. So I got close to my unit because we share our food, we share our water. Probably if something happened to me, they are the one who's going to protect me. Sometimes they were forced to do terrible things. Once he captured a Kurdish prisoner of war who had surrendered to them. There was a guy that I will never forget. His name was Ahmed and he was 18 years old. Just a boy. The captured boy spent two days with Ali and his unit. So he was two days with us at the mountain, so we shared an hour food with him. I mean, he was just two years younger than me anyway. But Ali says his superiors decided it would be too much work to bring the boy back to the base. At the end, when we were going to the army base, they killed him. Ali said that they killed him. The boy, and they killed him. Ali knew then that if he had to fight against his own kind, the least he could do was speak up for the first time in his life. He was finally honest about his identity. I think that I'm strong enough, I can fight enough. Someone asked me, what are you? I was not scared to tell because I am proud of being Kurdish. After they found out who he really was, some of the people in Ali's unit became suspicious of him. One even started to taunt him. In our room, so we start to talk. He tried to make me upset and angry that I am a Kurdish. And when the Kurdish militants cracked his unit's secret radio code... My teammates, they were looking at me that Probably I did it. They reported Ali to authorities because they thought he had leaked the code to the enemy, and Ali was put into a cell. They locked me up for two months. Eventually, he was set free because there was not enough evidence to incriminate him. He saw the consequences of being truthful about his identity, but that did not faze him. After being discharged, he continued to open his mouth. After that, I couldn't hold myself when the people having a conversation, when they see, okay, all the Kurdish is terrorist. If someone is telling me that I am like this, I cannot be quiet. All the arguments that Ali was getting into did not go unnoticed. The Turkish police began to keep him on their radar. We sit at the coffee shop, we just talk about the politics. Randomly, the police comes and asks the ID, and then they says, okay, let's go to the jail. They arrest me several times because that I am a Kurdish. So that's happening all the time. You do something against the government, you have to pay for it. Ali says that the police then started placing threatening calls to his home and his workplace. So finally, Ali's boss called him into his office to talk. And then he said, Ali, you gotta stop talking. You, you, you will disappear. Well, I told him, no, I cannot hold myself. If you care a bit about other people, if you care what's going on in the country, you will open your mouth. And then he said, it's best for you to go out of country. Ali's entire family agreed. They all felt that an Alevi Kurd had only two options. They could be silent or dead. But there was a third option, America. Everyone pressured him to leave. But he was nervous. What would he do? One night, he had a dream about America. I had a nightmare that I am working in a restaurant as a dishwasher. So when I woke up, I said, oh, thanks God, it was a dream. But washing dishes was better than winding up dead. So he decided to go. He kissed his mother and five siblings goodbye, and he got on a plane. I had around $5,000 in my pocket. I said, okay, well, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? So I started to work as a dishwasher because that's the only job that I can get. So my nightmare became a true. But he didn't wash dishes for long. Even though he'd never cooked anything in his life before that moment, he decided he wanted to be a chef. I start to tell the people, okay, show me, I'll make it. Show me, I'll make it. Show me, I'll make it. So then I start to make it. I start to learn and I start to cook. I like to cook pasta. It's my favorite. Eventually, he became a citizen and opened his own restaurant, a delicious Italian place in San Francisco. And that's where I met him, over a killer plate of pasta. He saw I was eating alone and sat down with me, not hesitating a second before launching into his entire life story. You were having a glass of wine in the restaurant, so then we started to have a conversation. So I told you, well, I offer you one more glass of wine. And I start open my heart to everyone that everywhere. So, <laughs> Because, you see, now 
Ali doesn't ever have to worry again about talking too much. That's the most important thing about U.S. I can uh, tell my real feeling. You can say anything. You don't scare from no one. for being brave enough to tell his story. And big thanks to all the snappers who are out there listening. That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu. Now then, I really have to go. This barbecue is not going to eat itself. But don't you worry. There are more stories you can shake a stick at, Snap Nation. Full episodes, pictures, movies, snapjudgment.org. And yeah, Snap's on the iTunes. We got that freedom of speech. Twitter, SnapJudgmentORG. Facebook, the stories heard on Snap are true to the person telling them. Snap was produced by myself and a team of true American heroes. I work with Captain America, the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Stephanie Fu appreciates the footwear on display in real American designer stores. Anna Sussman was not allowed to play with G.I. Joe. Pat Mercedes-Miller knows the Pledge of Allegiance backwards. Renzo Gorio hates scotch but loves whiskey. Jamie DeWolf claims America, but America does not claim Jamie DeWolf. Julia DeWitt bleeds red, white, and blue, and Will Urbina does his patriotic duty each and every day by eating vast quantities of American meat and American meat byproducts. Have you ever opened up the fire hydrant on a hot summer day, let the kids run through the water, only to have someone come out talking about, hey, that's against the rule. You're not supposed to do that. Well, don't handcuff them to a shed and beat them with a pole, friends. That's just a corporation for public broadcasting. Pour them a nice tall glass of whatever you're drinking and tell them not to worry because you've got a special dispensation from the government. Many thanks to the CPB, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, imposing public media against the rights of real working America, encouraging public media for everyone to enjoy. PRX.org. And even though this is not the news, in fact, this is not the news, you could take a list of America's greatest heroes. Don King, David Hasselhoff, Britney Spears, Yanni. You could put them all in a ring and have them battle it out for the title of the greatest American of all time. You could do that and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.